beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams podcast. Thank you for joining us once again. I am Joshua Black, your host for today, and our co-host is Jade Black. She's coming from Vancouver. Morning, Jade. Good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's uh, it's a disappointment. Sean can't come again uh, to the podcast, but I'm glad you're able to wake up this morning uh, and talk to our guest. So today we have Brian Lehman. Uh, being naturally curious, thoughtful, and a good listener, Brian has a unique ability to connect with others. His photograph career has taken him to over 30 countries around the world. Within the travels, he has many stories, one of which I'm actually really looking forward to hearing is being robbed in the back streets of Nicaragua for 35 cents, which he negotiated down to 14. <laughs> Brian's excitement and energy towards photography and displayed in speaking engagements and workshops he teaches. Although most proud of his Fulbright scholarship, he's been published worldwide in newspapers and magazines. He first appeared in National Geographic magazine in April 2015 after documenting a unique death culture in Indonesia. So welcome, Brian. Thanks, Josh, for having me. I'm I'm excited to, to be on the show. Great. Uh, I just want to say I was looking at your website last night, and so amazing. I was fascinated. I looked at every corner, and uh, the pictures are, are so beautiful. So I just wanted to start with that. And I wanted to know how you got into photography. Like, were you always into it, or, or was it kind of a later-in-life thing? You know, I, I started in photography sort of because I, I, I ran out of all other options, actually. <laughs> I, I, learned, I learned pretty quickly in college that I, I didn't like to study. And uh, with photography, you, you don't have to study at least out of a, a word book necessarily. And I started, you know, with a business degree and I got three years into that and I just was like, oh, this just is not for me. I can't, I can't uh, sit behind a desk forever. I'm too fidgety and whatnot. And so then I, I started flying lessons and I nearly crashed my plane twice and decided, well, that's, maybe this isn't the route for me. And then I happened to live a few blocks away from a, another guy who works was a long-time National Geographic photographer, so I called this guy up and said, hey, you know, do you do internships? And, you know, he didn't really, but he said, you know, let's do this hard labor trade. He liked to redo old houses and uh, old barns and stuff like that around Nebraska here. And so I would do this awful manual labor, like like throwing hay out of barns for days on end or or one time I had to grind cement off of his ceiling or another time throw pig poo out of a barn for days on end. And in turn, he would talk to me about photos and sort of teach me the ropes or, or sometimes it could just be about life. And it just, you know, catapulted me forward to, I mean, it was this nasty trade, but... In turn, I was learning from one of the world's best photographers and far more up my alley than studying in a book. Interesting. Oh, so what, did, like, what was the, the big learning curve for you? Because I'm guessing you weren't a professional photographer at that point. So what was it that he was giving you that you're like, oh, okay, that's how I can do it differently? 
I think that there's, it's not an instant learning curve. It's just slow things here and there. But the number one thing I would guess is that, well, I'm a, I'm a very good listener. And I can really latch on to things people are saying. And I remember them forever when I, when I find them really fascinating. And I learned pretty quickly from him, basically, that if your photos aren't good enough, you should stand in front of more visually interesting things. And in today's society, everybody has a camera. I mean, unfortunately, my 97-year-old grandmother can shoot photos just as good as I can. Well, she can expose photos just as good as I can. So it really raises the bar as to what sort of content people uh, are looking to see and and to be and really you have to surprise people and especially with National Geographic because you can I mean that's that's the holy grail of photography really and so the competition is just beyond belief and you're talking to editors who look at you know hundreds of thousands of photos a year and so to even get their attention you've got to surprise them and so that's that would be the number one thing that I took away from him. And then it was just a matter of learning how to recognize those sort of things when I came across them. And then probably 90% of photographers, their biggest hurdle to get over is just getting out the door. You know, people have ideas or they hear about something, but they can't gather the the, uh, self-motivation to get out the door and go track it down. And I think that I, I have that purely out of desperation to try to succeed. I think it's an interesting point you said that everybody has a camera and everyone has an ability to, you know, shoot photos. And and the comment you made about, you know, you should stand in front of things that that are are more visually stimulating. And and so when you're taking pictures, how do you know? Is there an emotion that's evoked, or how, like how do you know, you know, that this is going to be like a good shot over over another picture like like how do you how do you decipher that or do you just is it you know more led by your heart or no it, it's not from the heart I mean I, I well for one I'm not the most visually talented guy which is another reason why I have to really you know search for visually fascinating stories okay you know then for me you know there are there are for there are so many photographers out there I'm just thankful that I don't have to go up against head to head because they would just murder me. I wouldn't even, they, they beat me. They're better. They have better visual eyes than me. That's not my forte necessarily. And I've had to just study photo books. I mean, I, I have, you know, I don't know, 50 or a hundred photo books sitting around my house. You know, they're everywhere just so I can grab them and I study them and I look at what other people have done and you sort of start to, learn in your own head, you know, what makes a good photograph. And then on top of that, I, I was lucky, you know, just from from my early mentor and then other photo editors along the way that have really been the cream of the crop photo editors who were willing to give me time and discuss photos and what goes into a good photo and framing and angles and layering and light composition all these things that, that, you know, again, I've just had to study endlessly for to try to get better and better at. And then I think you start to recognize or it becomes 
second nature to you when you get into the to a visually fascinating situation what to do you know right. is the light you work with the light to your back or you know what do you put where in the frame i mean uh, basically i'll look through the camera i'm look, finding let's say this very interesting point and then i'm stepping back and i'm no longer paying attention to that interesting point and instead I'm looking at the edges of my frame to make a decision on what to include or not include in each photograph. Everything is accounted for. Nothing's a mistake. Well, it can be, and it can be good or bad, but right. that's the general basic theory of, of how I'm trying to frame a photograph. It doesn't always work quite so easy. but Right. So so apparently there's a ton of things to consider when you're taking a picture and, and you're saying it's more based on logic and not so much, you know, about about just feeling in your heart what would be a good a good picture and, and less emotional and more kind of concrete and planned out. And I find all that interesting. I know nothing about photography. Like, I mean, I love looking at pictures. I love looking at your pictures. I'm fascinated by photography um but i have no knowledge about like what actually goes into it and what constitutes you know a a good photo i just i just more or less know when i look at certain images you know i feel i feel something like i i'll some of your pictures that i was looking at i might feel a hint of sadness or excitement or uh you know fatigue or whatever so so i just think it's cool that a picture has an ability to kind of pull an emotion out of me and um yeah i find that interesting yeah i mean if you reference feelings you know as you mentioned a feeling in your heart rarely do i go and photograph something though that i that i don't have feelings towards in a sense you know right it's right it's, the difference between being a freelance photographer and let's say working at a at a newspaper as a newspaper you're very much stuck with with going to an assignment that unfortunately is probably you're going there because some writer has an idea and the majority of newspapers photographers are sort of like they they work for the writers in a sense national geographic's very backwards in that sense that the the writers work for the photographers there's if there's no photos there's no story that's just the bottom line right. and i think that most people who are around the geographic care less about money and more about finding passions and these feelings in their heart that they and then going out and producing you know the coolest most gravitatingly interesting image possible and they'll do whatever it takes to get to that point if that means you you know in this case and in in the the death culture story for national geographic i rode around on a moped for I don't know, four months just searching for, you know, uh, a dead body sitting up in a chair. And, it, and I had the, I did so much legwork to just get myself in that position and to figure out where this even happens. I mean, or if it even still happened. And I would, you know, we go and I bet we met with 60 village leaders and we show up to these villages and you have, you have coffee with, uh, with the head guy and, like, hey, do you guys sit the the dead puppy up in a chair? And he's like, well, uh, 
yeah, we still do that. Okay, well, that's great. When did you do that last? Well, we did it 40 years ago. Okay, well, that doesn't do me any good. <laughs> right. are you gonna, are you, would you do it again? Like, is there an opportunity it could happen again? He's like, yeah, sure. This guy over here. Well, that guy over there looks pretty healthy. You can't predict when he's going to die. So, you know, you, you, I mean, but what I'm saying is you get these feelings and you, and you, or you see something or you find something that you really feel is visually fascinating and, and you'll spend months on end trying to track it down and find it until you, you finally do. And what's that feeling like when you finally do? (laughs) It's like, that's the whole point. That's why I can't stop shooting photography and, and go do something that actually makes money because I'm so uh, it's like it's such a high to knock a photo out of the park and to, and to capture what you've been searching for forever that you, you keep coming back and so as long as the ideas keep coming I can't get away from it it's terrible it's, it's a terrible drug <laughs> It's terrible, but it's amazing all all in the same breath, I feel like, because, you know, you say I ha- that's why I can't go towards something that actually makes money. But I feel like this feeds you and sustains you in, in a, a whole different way. And, I, you know, I like that. Um, I like your analogy of 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 the drug. In my opinion, it's 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 a it's a good drug, and and you know to capture something and share it with the world is just like amazing because I would I would never, or at least I think I would never, you know, I don't have that drive to go to go you know hunt those situations down. So to have the opportunity to look at the pictures and read the stories, and I love National Geographic, so it's just that's an amazing gift you give to the world in that, in that way. So a drug to you and, and a gift to everybody else, I feel like. <laughs> well, you, you probably do have a drive. It's just not in photography and you're probably uh, smarter for that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I most certainly do have a drive. Yes, I, I would, I would agree to that. An insatiable drive, but so, you know, I can relate to, to all the things you're saying because I too, have have at one time or another perhaps right now have have engaged in something you know that might not be the most you know financially explosive profession but um it most certainly feeds me and stuff so i can i i can relate to that yeah for sure yeah i i I can remember i was i was in denver at a some sort of hamburger joint with a with a couple guys um it actually was a, a photo editor of mine, Mark Holm, and his brother. And his brother had had this job where, I don't know, and these guys were like, let's say, late 50s. His brother had made a slug of money doing some sort of sales job. And he had gotten to the point where he was like, man, I made all this money, but he's got, I've got nothing to show for it. I have no real passion. I just went through life and I, I've, I just made money. That's all I did. Versus this editor, Mark Holm, who was a brilliant photo editor, incredibly talented, and had all this passion and had all these things, these endless stories to talk about and situations he had been in and and this different sort of news coverage he'd he'd been a part of. He just didn't have the you know as much financially. And I just I've never forgot that that. It just seems like a sad thing to go through life without a passion. And if 
I would like to think that most people can find that some way, and and if they if they can't, that they could dig themselves out of that rut uh, to get there because you know life's pretty short. Yeah, I think it Absolutely. takes a lot of courage to to go after your passion, as you're saying, right? Like you have to do a lot of hard legwork. You have to you know risk financial you know success in different ways. And a lot of people they they that that scares uh the scares them it scares them to death and they're like I'd rather play it safe than risk on something that may make me more happy and and um, more passionate because they're so afraid of the opposite where they don't get the stuff that they that they desire and so I think like yeah like as a photographer there's a ton of photographers that go to like weddings and they do headshots and they they're amazing at what they do but they're not you, right? Like they don't travel to 30 countries. They're not going on a moped for four months looking for that perfect shot. They want their financial success and that's where they are. But like, I think it's beautiful and that there's something in you that gives you the courage to pursue these passions beyond sort of being financially secure. And by doing that, you've actually reaped a bunch of different rewards from your, from being in National Geographic and winning that scholarship and a lot of stuff that, you know, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do. So can you speak on that at all, on, on just having that courage? Well, I, I think that photography is, I mean, it's a lonely profession, I think, at least at this level. You know, it's lonely to be an entrepreneur just in general, I think. I think you have to go with your gut a lot. And I think if you tell too many people, I don't even really like to talk to people about it that much because it's like you tell them this idea and they think you're crazy. Like when I start telling people that I got this story that I'm working on, on this half man that, you know, lives in Daytona beach, Florida and walks on his hands. He doesn't have any legs. He does handstands on a sideshow. He dates a six foot tall stripper and smokes far too much weed. They look at me and they think I'm the craziest person in the world. I mean, if you tell a girl on a first date about that, she's likely to never go out with you again. I'll guarantee it. <laughs> But, but the the reality is the reality is is that these people aren't understanding what I'm seeing in this guy. What I'm seeing is a guy who doesn't have any legs, who has all this courage, and like I'm amazed by. It. Like I can't believe that this guy is just going through life, living just like you or I, and except he doesn't have any legs, and he walks on his hands. He vacuums his house. He drives a car. He dates girls. I, I mean, he, he's constantly, he's got girls all over him. In fact, twice in a hotel room. And one night we shared it at the Holiday Inn in Sioux City. And I, I woke up to him making love to this girl. I thought he'd been lying to me the whole time about all these girls that he was attracting. But as it turns out, he's a serious chick magnet. <laughs> but you, you, you just have, like, these are, that's a story, though, that, you know, if I told a bunch of people about, they just, they wouldn't see what I saw. And so, uh, you know, all these things I go, shoot, I'm just taking a risk on. I'm just photographing things that I like. And if you could shape that in a way that you can make some sort of a difference as you go, I think you're a lot better. You'll have a lot better career. But it, it is, it's really lonely. And, and it's a, this is a career full of a lot of really high highs. And then in between there, it feels low, you know, because you're you're constantly 
chasing that high again. And I, I feel bad, you know, sometimes I read about, like, let's say Robin Williams comes to mind or Michael Jackson. Like, some of these some of these very famous artists, I can sort of relate to them. Now, they're on a way higher level than I'll ever be, but I, I get where they're coming from and, like, mentally how it was so difficult to function through life because they're looking for this beyond belief expectation to produce something that's sort of surreal and almost artificial. And then the second you produce it, you're instantly declining until you produce it again and again. And so it's sort of, it's really mentally difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think too, it's like that for an entrepreneur, when you're talking about that, you know, type of career in, in photography and stuff, I feel like are like different writers I know come to mind and, you know, they say it's it's lonely and chasing that high and trying to get back up and, and kinda of isolated and and then, you know, again with the with the reference to Robin Williams and, and people of, of you know, celebrity and stuff. And I think just for normal people I think there's an aspect of that as well too. Like everyday people. I think um people who who aren't entrepreneurs are still kind of chasing um those same highs in in whatever form that that you know works for them or 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 is it attractive to them and so i think there's an aspect of that in all of us in in people from all all different walks of life and i think making those highs meaningful and then also finding meaning in the lows as well i think makes for for a more interesting and fulfilled journey, right? I think I think when it's too extreme, then then it has the ability to to really kind of you know disrupt you, like your mental state and stuff. But if you if you can kind of find a way to to have meaning in all of it and level it out a bit more, then then it becomes more bearable. Yeah, it reminds me of two Steve Jobs because people thought he was crazy when he wanted to like do the Mac or the uh, the iPhone, like. All this sort of stuff like he envisioned and people didn't believe it was possible. And then he went out and did it. And then everyone said, okay, I guess it's possible. <laughs> and then they, then they back you. I think it's like, as I say, it's lonely until you achieve that product. And then everyone says, oh, wow, it's amazing. Good job. And you're like, dude, where were you like six months ago <laughs> when, I, when, I was, when I told you about this before? Right. So that's why I say, I think, yeah, it's very lonely. And a lot of people yeah, have that in different areas of their life. I want to actually move forward to talk about the living dead. And how that even came about? You said you're on the moped for four months, but like, did you hear about this culture, or was it like a job that someone sent you on? I was working with a, a student at the University of Nebraska, and th- this is a brilliant student, and and she was, it still is, extremely hardworking, and she, we were a, a very good team in that I could feed her ideas and point her in the right direction on research and then she was just an absolute bulldog in searching things up and it was sort of you could trace it back to a couple of years of looking at different countries and then all of a sudden stumbled across some Facebook photos somebody had posted of dead bodies being hoisted up in the air and you couldn't find anything about it. Nobody knew anything about it. And so through some uh, grant money, 
from the Buffets, Howard Buffett, the, the university sent uh, a bunch of students over to Indonesia, and the student Kaylee Everly and I went and tried to chase this story down. And, you know, they turns out that in this culture, when you die, you, they sort of like, they, they would immediately, so when you die, they, they take off all your clothes and they wash your body and they put you up in this structure called a Tonkinon and they pump you full of formaldehyde. And then they, they put your body in the corner of the house and this is where it stays for maybe a couple months to maybe 10 years. And along the way, they're feeding you your three favorite meals or your favorite meals three times a day. And they're sleeping next to you and talking to you. And the whole time, they're making decisions and saving up money for your funeral ceremony. So if you're wealthy, that would be they, – they would slaughter a minimum of 24 water buffalo in your honor. And they build all these temporary buildings, and and the whole the funeral could cost 150 or 200 thousand dollars, which is why it takes many years until they actually hold the the ceremony. So then, when it happens, then you know it's a five day process, and then they they carry your body anywhere from a few hundred yards to many miles away, and they put you into a modern concrete above ground grave or some hole in the side of a mountain that they hired some guy to hand chisel out for a year of his life. And then and then you're you're buried there. But as we found out that once a year they bring your body back out and they because you never really die in Taraja. And they inspect your body and they lift you up in the air and they change your clothes and they take Facebook photos next to you and they comb your hair and dust you off. And, and, and they, it's a, you know, it's just this like very bizarre, crazy thing that, you know, which is why I say you just never really die in Taraj. It just keeps going and going. And so th- again, that leads to a very visually fascinating situation. Amazing. Yeah, That's it's so, fascinating. I, yeah, I have a lot of questions. <laughs> All right, you can go, Jade. <laughs> <laughs> so, so okay. So when they're talking to you and feeding you and stuff, is they're they're at this point they've accept that you've transitioned, or like you said, you never really die in that culture. So when well, they're talking to you, okay. sorry, go ahead. It, it's 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 confusing. I agree. Okay. Uh, so. That, so you, you're not officially dead until the first water buffalo is slaughtered. Okay, so so okay, you know, to, to them you're considered a sick person, and that's why they're still talking to you. And and one of the photos was uh, in the magazine. There's a girl laying down on the floor, and her she's a three year old girl. She died the night before of a uh, high fever. Her cousins and sisters are there, and they're showing her toys. They're putting makeup on her. They're talking to her. As though she's still alive, they're not scared of her. They're not nervous to be around this, to us, dead body, because to them, she's still a sick person, and she'll stay that way until the first water buffalo is slaughtered at the funeral ceremony. Okay. And then when they they 
the the water buffalo slaughtered, do they still bring them up every year? So only see this is the tricky part because there's so many different little cultures within Taraja and there's all these traditions and nobody knows why they do these traditions because they've been doing them for thousands of years and there's no real documentation. So that's sort of the tricky part and is I had to drive around and find the certain areas where they actually did this, where they actually pulled the bodies back out and stood them up and changed clothes and took Facebook photos next to them. So I was I was I was thinking when I was looking on your website I was I could see um one of the pictures was tourists and and and, and stuff coming in and, you know, kind of doing selfies or taking pictures of of the you know, the mummified body or whatever you would call it. Um so when you're saying they're taking Facebook pictures, that's the actual culture is is, is doing it? Like the actual people uh, yeah, yeah. are are documenting it in that way. The people so so it's a huge tourism thing for Australians and Europeans to come to Taraja. There's very few places in the world, I I really don't even know of another one, where you can hop a couple of flights, take a bus ride, and all of a sudden you're essentially in an, an ancient culture where they haven't changed their tradition right. for thousands of years. So the tourists, the, the general thing to see is, is the funeral ceremony, okay, where they kill all the water buffalo, they put the body in the temporary towers, carry the bodies around and at this point the bodies are in like a uh sort of casket a, you know a wooden casket and that's where you see the tourists taking these selfies the other stuff okay. the other stuff is in uh you know a different area it's like think let's say there's a thousand villages in taraja i don't know that's probably too high but but um each little village does different things okay and over time Modern Christianity and Islam, they, they've, they've gone away. Or they've forced them to go away with many of these ancient traditions. A hundred years ago, they were slaughtering humans as, as a sacrificial way to honor the dead. Okay, so that the, the Dutch came in, I believe, and put a stop to that. And, um, but, but, you know, nowadays, there's just a couple little colonies that pull these bodies back out still. And, and like I said examine them it's hard to find it's very very hard to find it took yeah. i mean i basically i basically caught uh uh on a hunch on my second trip I, I i thought potentially it could happen in this like three week span in this one colony but nobody could tell us anything about it so i just woke up one day and i was like i'm going and so literally literally the to Indonesia, which from Lincoln, Nebraska, takes me takes me four flights and a ten hour bus ride, and I think it it basically takes me three days to get to this area. It's very wow. remote in a sense. On a hunch. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, on a hunch, and that was and then and the, for the following week. I was driving around on a moped to all these villages trying to figure this out, trying to figure out what was going on. And people would, t you know, nobody knew. Nobody could tell me anything um, until 
finally we ran into it. Oh, and the whole time I was there, I, I have a little side business in, in Nebraska, a landscaping company, and my head guy, he quits on me and demands $1,000. <laughs> and and so then I got to hire my dad and pay him thousands more to come in and clean up this mess. This whole time I'm, I, I'm like endlessly striking out in Tarajan finding this thing and I'm going mentally insane. And there's just, you're helpless. There's not, you're, you're 10,000 miles away. Those are the low lows. Yeah. Those are the lows. Those are the lows where you lay in bed at night and you think, why am I doing doing this profession? This is so stupid. I was so peaceful at home. Everything was going great until I got this feeling to go do this. Why did I do this? But then when you find it, when you find it, you feel like you're in like a whole nother world. Like you've hit this home run beyond belief and it's like an ecstasy. It's, it's, and that's how, why you can't stop. <laughs> See, when I Googled you, it said there was a picture of you and it said death project gives photographer his dream. Like was one yeah. of the headlines and it was about, you know, this whole journey you're on and, and everything, you know, with the death project and stuff. So just fascinating, a hunch and then you just follow it. I, I mean, I, I'm constantly living this way. I mean, I, I'm. It, it's hard to get out there though because it, it is. It's really lonely out there when when you don't know anybody. You're in the middle of nowhere, in a country where very few people speak your language. I mean, it gives you a lot of time to think. I mean, right now I'm sitting in an amazingly comfortable leather chair. I've, I'm in my living room. I uh, I've got really cool artwork on the wall and things that people have given to me from different countries and, and, you know, my own personal touch here. It's very comfortable here. It's not comfortable, you know, when you're on the road, at least not in the places that I go. It just seems as though that the, that the best photographs tend to, to lead you to some of the most, um, a, a little bit rougher living conditions. And so how did you, so you, you travel so many countries and you're saying there's that language barrier. Do you know multiple languages? Do you hire a translator? Like how does, how, how can you incorporate yourself and be able to, to be a part of their culture to take these pictures? I, I don't know any other languages. I know I took <laughs> Spanish for, for four years in high school, but I, honestly, I, did, I didn't study at all and I barely passed. I, 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 for whatever reason, I, I, unfortunately at this point in my life, I'm really, just uninterested in in other language in other languages. I think because I'm, you know, you go one country and it's this language, and then you go to this other one and it's another language. And I'm the type of person that doesn't like to do anything unless it's going to be like on a really high level and perfect. And so to learn all these languages in a short time is is not realistic. So I just sort of catch the basic key words. But I travel with a translator and you know in indonesia i have a i think i went through six translators before i finally found one that was willing to just work 24 hours a day with me and be on the on the road basically for anywhere from a month to a couple months at a time so that's hard to find i mean these, these people are extremely hard working but you know, and you also have to find a translator that, that believes in what you're doing, and you have to essentially train them to be a journalist. You know, 
things things are not to be set up. You it, it needs to be the real situation. I can the director of photography, Saraline at, at National Geographic specifically said she's like don't don't even consider you know, don't set a body up in a chair. If it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. You didn't get it. You know, yeah. <clears throat> it's very ethical. And, you know, if I, if I, if I were to have done something like that and they were to find out, which they'd find out because they look at every single photo, you'd never work for them ever again. I mean, you'd be fired. And so, and they would torch your name all over the journalistic community. I mean, nobody would ever hire you again. Ethics are very high standards at the geographic, which unfortunately in today's day and age is, is hard to prove to some people. Absolutely. Um, but I think important too, you know, it's that it has to have a certain, you know, degree of authenticity and everything has to be, has to, I mean, in my opinion, that's the way it should be. So, tra- translators cool. really make or break. Translators really make or break you, though, because they're they're once you can get them on board with what you're doing, and they understand, you know, if they're not telling you something, you know, then you're you're missing it or you can't find it or whatever. So they've got to like continually be searching and and translating my thoughts and to these other people accurately. It can be difficult. They have a very hard job. And you have to gain a lot of trust with these people. Absolutely. Very cool. So just shifting out of the experience that you had in Indonesia and more personally to your own walk. I don't know, Josh, um, maybe we could talk about dreams a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's a great transition. So have you, so you've been, have you been to anything personally yourself? Um, and what are your thoughts on the differences between the two cultures? Do you like maybe something, do you like something that we do more than, than, um, and in, or is there something that maybe you'd like to see more that we don't do? You're referencing death, right? You, you cut out for just a second there. Yeah, death. Yeah. I, I think in the American culture, we're very nervous about dying and, in the Indonesian culture, death is a very exciting thing, and it's okay. It's not that they don't grieve. They do grieve, but you don't have these same stereotypes of being so terrified to touch the body. I don't know if that stems in America from a cleanliness thing, in a sense, you know, because it's so easily available to just get soap and running water here. And a lot of people there don't have running water and they have to go to a stream with a bucket and stuff like that. But certainly I feel that our society, we're just terrified to even like touch a dead body or, or get very close to one. And it's just sort of a, sort of a sad thing to me, you know, because over there when you die you're just so well taken care of it's like such a nice thought to know that these people are are working so hard so that you last forever essentially i think that i i guess that you know it's just such a backwards thing in indonesia they put all this emphasis on your funeral and in america we put all our emphasis on 
a wedding. Oh, that's it's true. Sort of yeah. Interesting as well. That is very interesting. Good connection. And so, have you ever lost anyone in your life? I I really have been so. I haven't lost anyone really directly uh, of a family member. Probably the two most important people that I've lost were two of the most influential photo editors in my life. And they were guys that I could call up at midnight and send them photos and ask them questions. And and that's a, a sad thing. It it's a, would be a nice thought that they uh, could hear me right now, I suppose. But I haven't lost, you know, really a family member other than, you know, in seventh grade, but I lost my grandmother. And I can remember being very nervous to, like, walk up to the casket and look at her. I certainly wasn't going to touch her. And quite honestly, I didn't, I didn't even want to go up to the casket. It's sort of a haunting memory in my head. But that's so, again, such a contrast from what I was in, doing in Indonesia. And there I was literally walking in a room and show up at some guy's house and walk up and say, hey, what, you know, I see that you have a, a white flag outside. Is there a dead body in the house? And, or a sick person? I, I'm not exactly sure how my translator phrased it to the, to the guy. And they'd say, yeah, come on in. So here I walk into this house, and sure enough, there's a dead body sitting right there. And it's no big deal. Let's sit down. We'll have coffee, and you're two feet away from it. Whereas, you know, you would never do that in America, ever. I remember when my dad uh, died, I brought a camera, and I started taking pictures. And people thought I was the craziest guy, just even like... (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I thought you were mental. I'm just telling you now. (laughs) I thought, what is he doing? (laughs) When I seen the photo album, I'm thinking, what is he doing? But you're right. I'm sorry for that. I apologize for that, Joshua. It's okay. It's okay. You know, I was just, you know, channeling my inner Brian. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you're never going to have that too. So I I understand it. Like, you know what I mean? You were capturing a moment in time and, and that's fair too. I shouldn't be so judgmental but <laughs> you know what's interesting about this though so so we have created this in this in the american culture to to be afraid of dead bodies and to not want to document them but every time just as a newspaper photographer that i had documented it people called me and they wanted the photos and i i can and it, it's one of those things where think others like to protect the people who are around it but in reality it's maybe not necessary and and certainly after the fact almost every single time people have come back they want to see these photos i can remember i used to be at the rocky mountain news in denver and they won a pulitzer for their coverage of columbine until the day the rocky mountain news closed people would come who had family members that were killed or were part of the Columbine event, they wanted to come and look at the photos that the Rocky Mountain News had of that extremely tragic event. That's amazing to me. I can believe that. Yeah, for sure. What if that wouldn't have been documented? You know, certainly this is a way for them to grieve in their own private way. Absolutely. Yeah, and if they have, like, unknowns kind of lingering, it's like that's a piece of the puzzle in their mind so to to others it might seem tragic but to them it's like grieving or to have to have some 
closure. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, I think it's, I think if they wouldn't have took the pictures, I think that's the issue, but they want to have pictures taken after the fact. And so they're in a very tough predicament because, you know, they're not going to hire a photographer, right? Because then that looks bad on them. So it's like, if someone does take it, like, I want to see it. Yeah, I want to see it. Right. That's so fascinating. those photo editors that 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 you had such a profound connection with that that have passed on, um, you've never dreamt of them. I I think about these people a lot. I suppose I don't know. I don't have very many dreams right now because I don't sleep very well at night because I'm too stressed out. <laughs> but you know, I, I I suppose I have here and there. But I, you know, I I have you know j- just a lot of you know, great memories, you know, with them that I, that I think about and I think about how much these people helped me. But I guess in, in, re, in regards to dreams, I can remember having a dream where I saw like a ghostly figure of, it was my grandmother outside the house, just sort of like looking in at me. Uh, you know, but again, it was a very, nerve-wracking scary dream to me like a bad dream in a sense mm. just because i was scared but i think that if i was an indonesian or a tarajan and i had that same dream i'd wake up really happy and like really excited that and that i was able to have this dream wow that's interesting like your beliefs in the culture probably affects your interpretation of the dream and so how old that's, are you well, that's I I was young, you know, maybe, and and again, this is why I'm saying, like, I think it sticks with you more, because I think I had this dream when I was young, maybe, like, seventh or eighth grade, I don't know, and I don't, and again, it sticks with me, because I was scared of it, it was sort of haunting, okay, so it lingers, and probably, I'm I'm certain I've had some dreams of some sort with my interactions with these two photo editors, because they're so influential in my life, but they were great dreams. They were happy. And I I guess I'm sort of wired to remember something a little bit more haunting than something happy in real life. I I remember the happy memories more in my dreams. The haunting things stick with me. Yeah. It's it's very interesting. And hopefully, yeah, because some people will say, some people actually will, will say they, they, the positive dreams are so positive. That's all they remember. And it's like because it had, they say it has like a different flair or, or vivid, like it's very vivid and it's very real. Were they like vivid and real or were they just like in the background of the image? No, this felt very real. This felt very real to me. Like I woke up and I, I sat up and I'm looking outside of a screened in porch. I, I was camping with my cousin on the back porch of, of my other grandmother's house. And this grandmother was standing there just sort of looking in. It was very, it was real, but ghostly. It felt very, very real. I mean, I, I mean, you know, we're talking 20 years later, and I'm thinking about it as though it happened yesterday. Maybe I'm remembering my dream wrong. I don't think so, because I, I, I remember the exact same image forever. And I wish I, I wish I didn't remember it, honestly, because mm-hmm. I, I don't have a lot of memories of her because I was too young. But that, and that's the one that sticks with me, which is sort of upsetting. Oh yeah, I, f- I feel for you. You know, like we don't ever want to be afraid or have those those negative feelings towards 
dreams or even towards uh, the people of the past. We want those positive sort of memories to stay with us um, as we sort of grieve because it, as you said, like it can hinder you processing their loss and just moving forward in life. So hopefully, you know, one day, you know, I can figure maybe that like how to figure that out and how to sort of replace those dreams or something or how to get further understanding from those dreams. Um, but hopefully one day that can subside and maybe you can have a, another dream that overcomes that or, or changes that in some way. I guess the last question we have for you here is what dream, if you could, tonight of someone who has passed away, um, would you want to have? Oh, I'd love to have a, a dream of one of these photo editors that that was so influential in my life where we could be, you know, walking down to the printing press at midnight and papers are just flying off the press and we could grab some papers off and there'd be ink on your hands because they were so fresh and we'd be there analyzing the photos that were running in the paper that day or how they could be better or what we needed to do to be better. Something like that would be quite nice, I think. Oh, I think so. And could you just state again the uh there was a, a gap when you said who it was? So would it was it both the editors or just the one? The editor that came to my mind was this Mark Edelson and okay. who I worked with in Florida. Good. Yeah. Especially yeah. if we gave you an idea of a, like of something to do in the in the future, you know? <laughs> go do this you'd be like oh god i'm now exhausted but i'll do it <laughs> now you're chasing this photograph you saw in your dream yeah <laughs> oh that's funny it'd be cool one day when we we're talking about dreams it'd be cool one day to be able to maybe even take photos of your dreams like some of the images that we dream about and that'd be i think you know um that'd be so cool that'd be so yeah i'm just thinking about that like man like that would be an interesting field of um, a career choice, taking pictures of people's dreams. I think, <laughs> I think it would be fascinating if somebody that they could hook some sort of device up to you and, and video record your dreams. But it could be one of those things where you should be careful what you wish for, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I can only imagine the images, yeah. Yeah, truly. So this has been amazing. I'm curious about how, for myself and for the listeners, how we can connect with you. Do you have an Instagram? Um, I imagine your Instagram is crazy if you do have one. Yeah, my, my Instagram's Brian Lehman Photography, L-E-H-M-A-N-N. Okay. Or if you just, if you Google Brian Lehman, find it, it that way. my name pulls up although I'm I'm somehow constantly in competition with some math professor on on <laughs> number one for Brian Lehman on Google, which is very aggravating for me because I I feel like this guy somehow knows this algorithm with Google so that he can like every once in a while he's he's on top of Google above me. I'm like, dude, you're a math professor. You've got to be boring. I have somebody like that on my too and it's Jay it's Jade Black, but it's she, but she's J-A-I-D, like her name is spelled J-A-I-D, but I think she's an author as well. But I mean, I use Jade Carlin, like my middle name or whatever. But um, yeah, it used to be like that when I used to always go by by Jade Black. But yeah, that's definitely funny. 
So hopefully then, um, we can get you to number one somehow. Yeah. Well, I'm at, I'm at, I looked the other day. I just, I just looked, and I wasn't number one, and he's, he's six back now. So that makes me feel good. That <laughs> You're winning. I, I like just that. As long, yeah, just as long as I beat this math professor. I, I just cannot stand that this guy, like, what does he know that I don't know? Like, I'm published constantly, and this guy, every once in a while, he's, he, he's like, beating me. <laughs> the goals we have in life, eh? Yeah, really. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, so you have a website, you have an Instagram. I'm going to follow you because I imagine it's pretty cool. And um, if anybody, you know, any listeners have um, questions they want to ask you or whatever, you can um, email him or find his yeah. contact through that way. And what's the anybody email? Anybody can email or Brian. My email is Brian at BrianLayman.com or Instagram BrianLaymanPhotography. And anyone can email me at, or shoot me a message on Instagram. I'm constantly getting messages. And I work really hard to try to respond to to everybody. And what's your website? BrianLayman.com. Okay. So, yeah, folks, uh, check it out. Like, we're talking about some of the pictures and his... And, but now you know more about who he is and, and what it takes to get these photos. So go check them out. Send him a message because, yeah, they're absolutely amazing. And you're an amazing guy. And I love how you have the courage to just continue to pursue these wild stories and go out of your comfort zone to achieve this stuff. And I'm glad you got success because it means you're going to keep doing it. And I can't wait to see what you have next, even with the, the half man, I think you called them. Yeah. DJ yeah. Okay. Shorty. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing uh, that and, and that series and whatever uh, else comes your way in the next uh, couple of years. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciated uh, the time you took. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Josh and Jay. This was a, a lot of fun for me. Yeah. Really cool. And um, keep doing what you're doing. I find your pictures just so amazing and yeah, I'm just fascinated by what you do and and so I'm just I'm rooting for you in your highs and your lows and your and your at times isolated career. I think um you're doing something really amazing and 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 like I said before offering an amazing gift to the world. Yeah, just so cool and and thanks for being so open and honest during this interview. It's been it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. You guys make me feel like I'm really important. Wow, you're a superstar. You are important. <laughs> you are, it's true. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You are important. Yeah. I need, you guys, I need you guys to call my girlfriend and tell her that I need to get some credibility. Hey, we'll do whatever you want. <laughs> send, up, send us an email. Um, but yeah, whenever you have a low low, just you know, listen to the end of this podcast and hopefully I'll cheer you up and realize that what you're doing is meaningful. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. All right. So uh, for our stuff, uh, please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. You can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And this podcast can be found on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. And if you're looking for information on Jade, uh, you can go to our website and she's under our team members and you have all our information there and her Twitter. What's your uh, Instagram account, Jade? is jade carling coaching okay so you can find her there so as we like to end with love and gratitude from us to you the new beginning